Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 122 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the warning or illumination of conscience. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. All through human history, people have been fascinated by prophecies and whether they'll be fulfilled in their own day. And in recent years, some authors have been discussing a proposed prophetic event that goes by many names, including the warning, the illumination of conscience, and others. It's said to be a moment when God will give everyone a look at their sins, their own hearts, and how they stand before him. It's an event discussed by some mystics in apparitions and private revelations. Some have said it's one of the signs that will precede the second coming of Christ. Some have claimed that the illumination of conscience will occur in the near future. Some have even claimed that it will occur in the year 2020, because, of course, 2020. So how accurate are these claims? Will such an event actually take place, and will it occur this year? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. All right, Jimmy, how did you decide on this as our topic for today? The initial reason was because I've been getting a lot of questions about it. There have been a bunch of emails that have come in over the last few months. There are certain websites and individuals that have been promoting the idea that not only will this event take place, but that it will take place this year in 2020. Some of the people who have contacted me have been very concerned about this and whether they should take the claim seriously and what they should do to prepare for the event. I've even received queries from people who openly said that they were panicking with anxiety and were terrified. So simply for pastoral reasons, I wanted to do something to help these people if I could. So I started looking into the subject in more depth. I also want to use this episode to model the kind of work that I think needs to be done when evaluating claims like this. Uh, Unfortunately, many people don't do that work. Instead of exercising open-minded but critical discernment, they often simply either dismiss the ideas out of hand or accept them without cross-examining them. Now, we talked back in episode 87 about how the church evaluates private revelations and how it takes a careful and balanced approach to them when trying to discern whether or not they're authentic. You can go back and listen to that episode for the general principles that are used. But even once an apparition has been judged authentic, there's a process of discernment that has to be used because the church acknowledges that not everything a seer reports may be accurate. If God is speaking to someone, the gist or fundamental message will be accurate, but the seer's own consciousness may add details or misunderstand things. And if you're trying to piece 
together a picture of the future from multiple different reports of private revelation, whether they're approved or not, more careful discernment is is required. So I wanted to do an episode of Mysterious World to model what needs to be done so that when people encounter such claims in the future, they'll be able to engage in the kind of discernment that's necessary. So what are the key sources about the warning or the illumination of conscience? There are a variety, but one of the most popular websites discussing it today is called CountdownToTheKingdom.com. One of the main contributors to that website is named Christine Watkins, and she's written a book on the subject that's currently the most popular one. It's called The Warning and subtitled Testimonies and Prophecies of the Illumination of Conscience. If you go to Amazon and type in either The Warning or Illumination of Conscience, hers is the one that will come up first. Amazon classes it as a bestseller. So we'll be using it as one of our principal sources today. Another contributor at CountdownToTheKingdom.com is Daniel O'Connor. I reached out to him while doing research on this episode, and he was very helpful. He may have different conclusions than I have, but I found him helpful and reasonable, and our exchanges were cordial and informative, and I want to publicly thank him. Also, I want to make it clear that other people besides the folks at Countdown to the Kingdom, are writing and speaking about the warning. So not all of the claims that other people are making are found in Watkins' book or on Countdown to the Kingdom. For example, some of the people who are saying definitely going to happen in 2020 are not at CountdownToTheKingdom.com. So so don't think that that there's just one version of this. If you encounter a particular claim... It needs to be attributed to the person who's making it, and don't assume everybody who's writing or speaking about this topic has all the same views because they don't. Okay. So what does Watkins say about the event in her book? She notes that it is referred to by many names. This event has been given many titles by saints and holy people, including the Mother of God. They have called it the Warning, the Illumination of Conscience, the Illumination of All Souls, the illumination of all consciences, the second Pentecost, the new Pentecost, the minor judgment, the merciful prejudgment, and the great day of light. Piecing together the statements made in different reported revelations, she builds up an overall picture of the event. Combining completely separate sources through time and around the world, we can piece together a blueprint of this cosmic and spiritual event. At first, Shadows will cease to be shadows, and instead become a most terrible darkness that will obscure the sun's light. Even the stars and the moon will fail to shine. Then, the vault of the sky will be illuminated by the appearance of two colliding celestial bodies, producing a booming noise and lighting up the entire earth. Panic will ensue. The day will be brighter than normal, and the night will shine like the day. Then Jesus will appear in the sky on his cross not in his suffering, but in his glory. This sign of the Lord will be visible in every part of the world, no matter where one may be. From the holes made by the punctures in Jesus' hands, feet, and side, brilliant rays of love and mercy will fall upon the entire earth. When this flame of God's love touches earth, everything will suddenly stop. A plane flying through the clouds will pause in midair. A soccer player running through the field will halt. 
everyone and everything in earth will freeze, as if time has stopped. Yet, in the ensuing five to fifteen minutes, all people, whether they be Muslim or atheist, mentally incapacitated or sane, young or old, will see the sins of their lives. They will see the good they have failed to do and the bad they have done. Everyone will find themselves all alone in the world, no matter where they are at that time, undergoing their own personal experience and oblivious to the world around them. The cross will remain in the sky for seven days and seven nights. So based on the sources she's drawn together, Watkins presents the illumination of conscience as involving a number of different things. There will be a worldwide darkness. Two celestial bodies will crash into each other, causing a loud boom and illuminating the sky with a great light. The risen Christ will appear in the sky on his cross and light from his wounds will illuminate the earth. Everything, even vehicles like airplanes in flight, will stop for five to 15 minutes. Everyone will see their sins and the good they have failed to do. And the cross will remain in the sky for seven days and nights. It's also understood that this will precede other apocalyptic events. Uh, One of these, as you would expect, if everyone suddenly got a glimpse of their spiritual state before God, is a massive wave of conversions, though not everyone will convert. The key thing, though, is that this will be a supernatural event where God gives everyone in the world an examination of conscience all at once. That's different than the illuminations of conscience people ordinarily experience, which are not a life review as the warning would be. How do ordinary illuminations of conscience work? They happen in different ways. God has built conscience into human nature, and so it's natural for everyone to periodically have a conscience check to see whether they're doing what they should or not. As St. Paul says in Romans 2, God put his law into the hearts of men so that even pagan Gentiles have their consciences either accuse or excuse them. And any moment where you're actively thinking about whether your behavior is or has been moral is a moment of illumination where you examine your conscience. But sometimes an illumination of conscience isn't purely natural the way these are. Jesus said in John's gospel, this is in chapter 16, that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin. And God often gives us special supernatural grace to help our consciences along and make a more accurate assessment. That's good because human nature is fallen and our consciences are distorted by original sin, by our own sinful habits, by poor moral formation or training, and by our own ability to rationalize our behavior. So thank God that the Holy Spirit gives us extra grace and helps to continually bring us to conversion from sin. Sometimes the Holy Spirit may even illuminate our consciences in a particularly intense, even mystical type of way. That doesn't happen to everybody, but in some cases it does. In fact, a big section of Christine Watkins' book is devoted to accounts of people who have reported having intense moments where their consciences are illuminated. But all the illuminations that have taken place thus far, whether natural or supernatural, and whether mild or intense, aren't what we're looking at in this episode. Instead, we're talking about a single moment in time when God is supposed to give everyone on earth a powerful, mystical examination of conscience. That's what the 
illumination of conscience is supposed to be. And since many people are not living in the way they should, that's also why it's called the warning. In other words, a massive worldwide warning that they need to repent. What theories are there about the warning? There are different versions of the theory because different authors have said various things about it. In her book, Watkins builds her picture of the event by putting together statements from different sources, but this isn't the only way to put them together. You might come up with a different picture by including details from more or fewer sources, uh, depending on which ones you credit. So there's no single one understanding of the event. That means that you can't press all the details from a particular composite description of the event. It also means that you can't dismiss the idea of the warning just because you don't find a particular detail or a particular source credible. I mean, you might eliminate that detail or that source, but that doesn't do away with the rest of the picture. What they all have in common is that there will be this moment at some point before the second coming where everyone in the world has an intense supernatural look at the state of their soul before God all at the same time. That's the basic idea, and it's either true or false. So those are the two basic theories we need to examine. How are we going to proceed in our investigation? St. Paul lays down a very important principle in 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. I take this principle very seriously. When we encounter a prophecy, we should not despise it or dismiss it. Instead, we should test it. How should we go about doing such a test? Anytime we test an idea, we need to do so both from the perspective of faith and reason there are some aspects of the claims that are made in reported revelations that can be examined from the reason perspective, and we'll need to look at those. However, when dealing with private revelation, most of the relevant data has to be assessed from the faith perspective. In making an evaluation from both perspectives, we need to take an approach that is both open-minded and critical. We need to be open-minded because otherwise we won't fairly examine the data that supports the idea. And we also need to be critical because otherwise we won't weed out bad or weak data. I hate to say it, but I'm afraid that a lot of people writing and speaking in this area don't take the needed approach. Some take a closed-minded approach where they don't give the evidence a fair shake, and others take an uncritical approach and don't weed out bad or weak data. This isn't just the case, incidentally, with people looking at private revelations. It's also the case whenever you are dealing with claims of extraordinary events, including many of the kinds that we deal with here on the show. That includes uh, conspiracies, cryptids, UFOs, paranormal research, and other subjects. Whenever people consider claims about unusual phenomena, you get the same groups of people springing up, skeptical debunkers and uncritical believers. Before we look at our present subject, Can you give an example of how that works in a different field? Sure. Let's look at UFO studies. It's well known that many who comment on them are so skeptical that they engage in what is essentially debunking, meaning that their primary goal in looking at a UFO report is to find a way to disprove or dismiss it. Some people will say that aliens don't exist or that they couldn't get here, so all UFO reports must be false. But how do they know these things? Well, 
even UFO supporters acknowledge that most sightings aren't actually alien. If even one of them was, that would be evidence both for aliens and that they can get here. But people coming from a debunking mentality won't consider the possibility that this could be the case, and they often make fun of people who believe in or report sightings of UFOs. That happens in every field involving unusual claims, including ones of private revelations. And then what about the flip side of this, those who take an uncritical approach? It certainly happens a lot in the UFO community. It's exciting and mysterious to think that aliens might be real and are visiting us, and many people so want it to be true that they don't take a hard look at the reports. They don't cross-examine them to see if there are other possibilities, including imagination and fraud, that could explain them. If a person reporting a UFO-related event sounds likable and sincere and tells an interesting story, many tend to accept it without asking hard questions about it. Also, people build up false pictures based on what they take to be the current UFO consensus. What's a UFO consensus? It's a general impression or agreement among UFO reporters or experts that a certain thing is true. For example, you know, what the aliens are doing here, what their goal for visiting Earth might be. If a bunch of people are saying the same thing, doesn't that add weight to their claim? In principle, yes. If you have multiple truly independent sources saying the same thing, then yes, it does add weight. But Often, not as much as you'd think, because the sources often aren't independent of each other. For example, in the 1950s, there was what was known as the contactee movement. According to many people who claimed to have been contacted by aliens at the time, the contactees, the aliens are benevolent beings who are our space brothers who are here to warn us against things like nuclear war and ruining the environment. But the contactees weren't people who were all independent of each other. They read each other's books and pamphlets, attended each other's talks, and went to the same gatherings. As a result, you couldn't be sure that you had multiple independent reports of what the Space Brothers were saying. There was a strong possibility that they were picking up ideas from other contactees and reworking them. In fact, if you said that the Space Brothers told you basically the same thing as what other contactees were saying, that was a great way to establish your own credentials as a contactee. So you got a lot of similar messages, but with variations. And the variations were interesting because if you want to attract attention as a contactee, you also need to say something different than what everyone else is saying. Otherwise, why should people listen to you instead of just paying attention to the already famous contactees? So when new contactees started appearing, they would repeat the same basic substance as the previous ones, but they'd change it in one way or another, and there were patterns to the variations. One was that the stories got more dramatic. Contactees would tell more vivid stories as time went along, which is what they need to do in order to attract attention. I mean, if your story is less dramatic than what previous contactees have said, it's not exciting and people will pay less attention to it. Also, interestingly, contactees tended to report 
older contacts, meaning ones that had happened farther back in time than other contactees had reported. For example, if contactee A says, well, this is what happened to me in 1955, then later contactee B would say, what contactee A said about his experience in 1955 is true, but now let me tell you about my experience back in 1950, because the aliens were in contact with me five years before, so I've been in contact with them for longer, and they've told me more. This would add greater authority to the claims of the later contactees, since the aliens were speaking to him even earlier. In both of these ways, it looks like there was a kind of one-upsmanship going on between a lot of the contactees. And it wasn't just them. The same thing happens all down through UFO history, whether it's reports of secret government files or abductions or whatever you want. Hooking into the existing UFO consensus and then modifying it so that your story is more exciting and more authoritative sounding is just good for business. What do people need to watch out for to avoid being misled by a UFO consensus? Well, first, they need to be aware of the phenomenon. Uh, for decades, people have looked into the currently popular UFO literature and gotten a certain impression from it. And the impression that you get depends on what books are in print at the moment and what popular theories are around at the time. If, at any given moment, you start reading UFO literature, you'll find certain ideas are popular with the authors writing and speaking at that time, and it'll seem like there's a consensus among UFO experts about what's going on. You'll even find that the current UFO literature often cites prior works that go further back in history, but they use them selectively. They don't include old claims that don't support the currently popular ideas. They also read old data through the light of the current theories, which can distort what the older reports were actually saying. For example, some older UFO books report claims from the appearances of Our Lady of Fatima as if they were evidence for alien life. Hmm. I remember reading this in UFO books back in the 70s. They talk about these BVM or Blessed Virgin Mary encounters as if they were somehow evidence for aliens. But that's not what people in 1917 were claiming back during the Fatima apparitions. That's reinterpreting historical reports on one subject as being really about a totally different subject. So the literature in a given period tends to create an impression that current claims go back farther in history than they really do. But if you study the historical reports, you find they go through phases, and you can build up different pictures depending on which sources you listen to. For example, one of the first theories is that aliens are here to study us, so they're doing a quiet scientific study under some kind of prime directive to keep from interfering with the natural course of human development. I mean, that theory has been popular for decades. But in the 1950s, the contactee movement started, and it was popular for a while, but eventually gave way to other movements. By the 1980s and 90s, many people were reported being abducted 
by aliens and subjected to various tests, but the perceptions of what the aliens were up to varied wildly. Some claimed that the aliens were benevolent beings who were here to guide us to a better world, while others saw the abductions as frightening experiences that have a sinister purpose, like conquering the Earth or replacing us with a race of alien-human hybrids. So, depending on what sources you give credit to, you get very different pictures of what's supposed to be happening. If you listen to some authors, the consensus is that the aliens are here simply to do science. If you listen to the contactee consensus, they're here to benevolently warn us about making mistakes. If you listen to the abduction reports, one consensus says they're here to benevolently guide us to the next stage of our development. And if you listen to a different set of abduction reports, another consensus says they're here to invade or replace us. So there are thus multiple UFO consensuses, and they can't all be true. So you need to cross-examine the currently popular consensus in your day, as it's just one perspective, and it may well not be true. Okay, before we get accused of turning this into a UFO episode, uh, let's come back to our subject of evaluating prophetic claims based on multiple sources of private revelation. How can we apply what we have learned about the UFO consensus? Right. And this is the reason I wanted to look at a parallel field to see, you know, the phenomena that crop up there, because we need to take that knowledge and apply it to our current discussion. So one thing that we need to exercise caution about is proposed prophetic consensuses. These can either have weight or fail to have weight, depending on the circumstances. And a prophetic consensus is what you'd think. You'd have a bunch of different seers saying something's going to happen. And how do you weight that? Well, if heaven is telling multiple people the same thing, and the revelations are reliable, then that revelation definitely adds weight to what their collective message is. But if the revelations aren't reliable, then the fact there are a number of them doesn't give added weight to the concept being proposed. One way of guarding against a false prophetic consensus is to focus primarily on approved apparitions, ones that the church has looked at and determined to be supported by credible evidence. This is important because, like the majority of UFO reports, the majority of apparition reports are not well supported by evidence and are not to be relied upon. Lots of people at some point in their lives think they see something odd in the sky and conclude it was an alien ship when it wasn't. In the same way, at some point in their lives, lots of people have a feeling or a thought that God is telling them something when he wasn't. There are even deliberate hoaxers in both fields who are out to get attention or money. We can't accept an apparition claim just because we want it to be true any more than we can accept a UFO claim just because we want it to be true. If you do, you're building a prophetic theory or a UFO theory on unreliable data. And we're fortunate that the church has a vetting process that deals with the more important apparitions. That's a huge service. The UFO folks don't have exactly the same thing. So if an apparition is unapproved, does that mean the same thing as it being disapproved? No, the vast majority of apparitions have not been approved simply because the church has never investigated them. 
In other cases, the church has investigated them, but didn't feel that the evidence was strong enough one way or another to issue either an approval or a condemnation. So unapproved means simply that, an apparition that has not been approved. It doesn't mean that the apparition has been condemned. Does that mean we should never accept data from an unapproved apparition? No, it means that we need to do our own investigation if we want to use that data. Uh, we need to vet the apparition's claims open-mindedly, but critically, to see if there's good evidence behind them. We can't either accept or dismiss it just based on our personal preferences. Also, we need to distinguish between cases where the church has looked into an apparition and cases where it has not. If the church hasn't looked into an apparition, then we're more free to form our own judgments. But if the church has looked into an apparition and not approved it, that should serve as a caution to us because church investigators are likely to have had a better look at the evidence than we will, and they concluded it wasn't enough to approve. Either there wasn't enough positive evidence favoring the, the approval, or there was negative evidence pointing away from approval. Either way, their investigation was likely to be more thorough and more objective than one a typical person might conduct. When reading today's prophetic literature, we need to learn some lessons from parallel fields on extraordinary claims. One is to look carefully at how current books handle material from the past. Are the accounts they quote accurate and well-sourced, or could they have been just something that was floating around in the literature that got copied and pasted into the current book? There are a lot of poorly sourced claims and quotations out there in both UFO literature and apparition literature. Also, are the historical sources really talking about the same thing? Or is the modern author taking older material and reinterpreting it to fit something that wasn't under discussion? like the BVM encounters being evidence for aliens. And especially for unapproved, unvetted seers, we need to look for parallels with contactees that could provide a non-extraordinary explanation for what they say. Does a given seer read other seers' literature or go to gatherings where such claims are discussed? If no... That would support the idea that their message is independent of other sources. But if a seer is known to be familiar with what other seers have said or are saying, that may be a sign the message is just being recycled with variations. And we should look at the variations. Is the current seer making more dramatic claims than previous seers? Is the current seer trying to claim more authority? than other seers, such as having had visions for a longer period of time or from a higher source up in heaven or because they have a more special role in God's plan. Those same two things, more dramatic claims and claims to more authority, were problematic signs among contactees, and they are among seers too. Also, how credible is what the seer says overall, even about material that's not supposed to be revealed? Just like a contactee who makes bizarre and grandiose claims about their ordinary life, 
should be viewed with with suspicion, so should a person claiming to be in touch with heaven if they just make bizarre and grandiose claims about their ordinary life apart from what they're receiving in revelations. Is there anything else we should watch out for in evaluating reported apparitions? Yeah, the problem of approval inflation. We need to look carefully at an apparition's approval status, whether there's been a formal church investigation of the message and whether the messages have been approved, because an apparition's approval status is often misrepresented in a way that inflates it and makes it sound like it has more approval than it really does, although the reverse also happens. As we discussed in episode 84 on how the church evaluates private revelations, there's more than one kind of approval that can be given to a reported apparition. First, a bishop may give a kind of preliminary approval to a devotion that's connected with the apparition, like, say, this prayer or something. But this is not an approval of the apparition itself. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith makes it clear that this is to be understood as an approval indicating, in Latin, pronunc nihil abstare, or in English, for now nothing obstructs or nothing stands in the way of the apparition's devotion. But it doesn't mean this is a supernatural revelation. In fact, the CDF specifically says that bishops, quote, must be careful that the faithful not interpret this practice as approval of the supernatural nature of the event on the part of the church, close quote. But then... After a bishop has given approval to a devotion and ha- let people have some experience with it, then, in light of time past and of experience, a bishop may choose to give a judgment regarding the authenticity and supernatural character of the apparition. It's only if this second judgment is given that we have a ruling on whether the apparition itself is genuine. So we have to distinguish between approval of a devotion and approval of the apparition itself. Another thing we have to do is look at the language of the approval. Sometimes there are cases where there is an apparition, let's say of the Virgin Mary being seen by a bunch of people in the area, and one or more of those people also reports receiving a message from her, whereas the other people just saw her. Well, in some cases, you'll find that the bishop has approved the apparitions, the appearances of Mary, but not the messages associated with them. In that case, we have a judgment from a church official that something supernatural took place here in the form of the apparitions, but we don't have a judgment that the reported messages were supernatural. They might just have been someone's imagination or something. And then there's the flip side of approval, which is issuing a warning. According to the CDF, By reason of its doctrinal and pastoral task, the competent authority can intervene on its own initiative and indeed must do so in grave circumstances, for example, in order to correct or prevent abuses in the exercise of cult and devotion, to condemn erroneous doctrine, to avoid the dangers of a false or unseemly mysticism, Etc. So, if a bishop thinks that a devotion is going wrong, or there's a doctrinal error connected with an apparition, or that a false or unseemly mysticism is being promoted, he can intervene to warn the faithful against these things. 
How do these things get misrepresented in discussions of particular apparitions? People often aren't careful about them and skew them in favor of their preferred position. This can happen both among those who favor and those who don't favor a particular apparition, so both sides can misrepresent things. For example, those who don't favor an apparition may misrepresent negative comments made by a church official as if they're a formal condemnation, when in fact they're just a personal opinion and not a formal judgment. On the other hand, the reverse happens among supporters of various apparitions who may take positive comments made by a church official as formal approval, even though they were just personal opinions. Both sides also can be prone to taking rumors as facts, and there are multiple cases where statements are being attributed to different church figures on websites, even though there is no documentation of these in the public record, and many have been shown to be erroneous. There's also the issue of jurisdiction. The church has established a clear sequence of the competent authorities who can do a formal investigation and make authoritative judgments on apparitions, but you see people outside that chain of command who actually have no jurisdiction being cited as something more than just informal personal opinions. Another thing that happens is misrepresentation of imprimaturs, which are sometimes given to books of reported messages. Now, an imprimatur, for our non-Catholic listeners, an imprimatur is an assessment that's made by a bishop who either personally or in conjunction with a theological expert has looked at a book and said, does this contain anything that is contrary to the Catholic faith? And if it doesn't, then the bishop can give an imprimatur, which is Latin for let it be printed. And it's a kind of certification that your book doesn't contain heresy. So an imprimatur is not a judgment that an apparition is supernatural. It's a doctrinal examination looking to see whether a work contains material that contradicts Catholic teaching. What you can conclude from an imprimatur is that in the opinion of the bishop who issued it, and bishops sometimes make mistakes, a reported message doesn't contradict the Catholic faith. But anybody can compose a text that doesn't contradict the Catholic faith. I mean, all you have to do is say, Mary wants you to pray and be holy. Okay, that doesn't contradict the Catholic faith. It also doesn't mean it's supernatural. So just because a message doesn't contradict the faith doesn't mean that a person has received an authentic message from heaven. So if a book has received an imprimatur, that doesn't tell you what you need to know. Neither does the fact that a person currently has an open cause for canonization as a saint, or even that the person has been declared a saint. When a cause for canonization is underway, church authorities examine the person's writings for orthodoxy, but they don't typically do an investigation to see if messages that person reported receiving were authentically supernatural. Therefore, just because someone's being considered for sainthood, or even if they've been declared a saint, that doesn't constitute an official judgment on the authenticity of private revelations they reported. You'll also find people ignoring or downplaying official church judgments that have already been made. For example, you'll find people saying that an apparition has not been approved yet while ignoring official judgments about it. 
Thus, supporters of the reported apparitions in Garabandal over in Europe sometimes ignore the fact that the local authorities have looked into that case and concluded they could not affirm its supernatural origin. That's already a negative official judgment, even if it isn't a warning that the apparition contained elements contrary to the faith. It's a saying we looked into this and we could not establish that this was supernatural. It's hypothetically possible that such a judgment could be looked at again in the future and even reversed, but it misrepresents the state of discussion to say that it hasn't yet been approved. That doesn't reflect the fact that the authorities have investigated the apparition and found that the evidence for it was sufficiently wanting that they issued an official judgment saying we couldn't establish it as supernatural. Finally, you'll find people taking the fact that a bishop has approved a devotion that's connected with an apparition as approval of the apparition itself. That's something the CDF warned against. And you'll find people taking the fact that a bishop has approved an apparition as indicating that he's approved the messages reported in connection with it when he really hasn't done that. So how should we apply all of this to the warning or illumination of conscience? We need to look at the different sources that are cited in support of the idea. And for that, we'll be looking at Christine Watkins' book, since it's currently the most popular one on the topic. When looking at each source, we need to ask several questions, like, what is the source of the statement, and is it properly documented? Is it supposed to be a prophecy, or is it something else, like just natural speculation? Is it actually talking about the illumination of conscience, or could it be talking about something else? And how credible is this statement, for which private revelations will depend in significant measure on whether the church has done an investigation of it and what the results of the investigation were. Finally, once we've reviewed all the individual points of evidence, we need to look at the overall results to form an overall conclusion. All right. So before we get into the faith and reason perspectives and consider all the evidence, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Celestine K, Anthony H, Deacon N, Arthur and Jan P. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. So, Jimmy, what can we say about the illumination of conscience from the reason perspective? You'll recall that the portrait Watkins built up of it from different sources included the following claims. There will be a worldwide darkness when two celestial bodies will crash into each other, causing a loud boom and illuminating the sky with a great light. The risen Jesus will appear in the sky on his cross and will remain in the sky for seven days and with light issuing from his wounds to illuminate the earth. And then also during the illumination of conscience itself, everything, even vehicles like airplanes in flight, will stop for five to 15 minutes. Now, there are things that could cause a worldwide darkness, like a cloud of dust or gas surrounding the earth, or 
God could simply do some kind of light blocking miracle. The idea of two celestial bodies crashing into each other and causing a loud boom that can be heard on Earth, though, is quite problematic from the reason perspective. While there is a tiny amount of matter in space, there's not enough to transmit the sound of a boom across the vacuum to be heard all over the Earth. On the other hand, if two celestial objects collided in the Earth's atmosphere and caused a worldwide boom, there would be massive destruction where they collided and lots of people would be killed, whether the event occurred over land or over water. And such an atmospheric collision would not be something you could see from all over the Earth, just in one local area. It would need to be something that happens out in space if everyone on Earth gets to see it. Then there's the matter of the two colliding objects illuminating the sky. For this to be a worldwide light, the collision would again, have to occur in space because any atmospheric collision would only light up a portion of the Earth's surface, again, with highly destructive effects. But it's not clear to me what these two celestial objects would be. Only stars generate light on their own, and if two stars entered our solar system and crashed into each other, we would be wiped out. So it's not two stars. Hypothetically, it could be two celestial objects that don't generate light, but that reflect light from the sun. It isn't clear to me if these two colliding objects are supposed to create the image of the cross that hangs in the sky for seven days, but if that were the case, I suppose that a couple of icy bodies like comets could start disintegrating while approaching each other at right angles, and their trails would catch the light of the sun. However, it would be hard to generate a cross-like shape because the tails of comets always point away from the sun. It's the solar wind that blows particles off them and makes the tails. So the tails always point away from the sun. And even if you had two comets moving at right angles, their tails should simply parallel each other as they moved. And if they smacked into each other, it wouldn't create a cross-like shape, but a big cloud of debris. You also wouldn't get a figure of Jesus on the cross with light shining from his wounds. So whether or not the two colliding celestial objects create the cross in the sky or not, there are problems with this claim from the reason perspective. Some of the details in this account either aren't correct or aren't meant to be taken literally. I also don't find it credible that airplanes will suddenly stop in the sky for 5 to 15 minutes and then resume normal flight. That's not beyond the realm of divine omnipotence, but it would be an unprecedented miracle that doesn't easily fit with the reason perspective. I want to point out, however, that none of these claims deal with the essence of the proposed event, which is a supernatural illumination of conscience. They are simply claims based on individual sources, and so even though they're problematic from the reason perspective, they don't address the core of the claim. You can still propose that the warning will occur without proposing any of these specific things. Okay, so then let's look at the faith perspective. What can we say about the illumination of conscience from the faith perspective? Uh, let's start with what sources are cited as prophecies depict predicting it. One is a statement that Jesus makes in the Olivet Discourse, which is his major prophetic sermon. In her book, Watkins cites this passage from Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. There are some superficial similarities between this passage and the proposed model of the illumination of conscience. However, there are problems, and unfortunately, we don't have the time to do a thorough exegesis in this episode, though I do have future episode on the Olivet Discourse on the list of topics. Allow me then to point to a single problem. If you look at the accounts of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all begin with Jesus predicting the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which occurred in AD 70. The disciples then ask Jesus when the destruction of the temple will happen and what signs will precede it. And Jesus then gives the Olivet Discourse to answer their questions. That means that we should understand what he's saying as having its fulfillment in the years leading up to AD 70. People can be perplexed about this because they aren't familiar with how apocalyptic language works in the Bible. But you can show from Old Testament parallels that this kind of cosmic catastrophe language, like the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars falling from the sky, is often not meant to be taken literally. Instead, it's normally a figurative way of expressing what it will be like to live through a very traumatic experience. It will feel as if the cosmos collapsed around you. And given that Jesus is explicitly talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that's how it should be taken here. Now, since prophecy can have more than one fulfillment, this doesn't mean that there can't also be a future fulfillment, but it does mean that we can't simply appeal to Matthew or Mark or Luke as if it were predicting the proposed illumination of conscience, because that's not what it's trying to tell us in the literal sense of the text. All right, then who is the first historical source that we have discussing the illumination of conscience? According to Watkins, it was St. Edmund Campion. He was a Jesuit priest who evangelized in England in the 1500s, and he was martyred by the Protestant authorities. Various authors cite him as predicting the warning when he says this, I pronounced a great day, not wherein any temporal potentate should minister, but wherein the terrible judge should reveal all men's consciences and try every man of each kind of religion. This is the day of change. Notice that he's talking about something he said in the past. I pronounced this day at some point in the past, not I pronounce it here and now. So we need to ask what past event he's talking about and what he was trying to say at the time. One of the first questions we want to ask is whether this is actually a reference to a future illumination of conscience event or whether it was about something else like Judgment Day where God will definitely give us all an examination of conscience. We need more than just a reference to God showing people their consciences. We need to show that this is an event distinct from and before Judgment Day. So 
Let's look it up in context. The quotation is taken from a biography of St. Edmund Campion by the British author Evelyn Waugh. And here is what Waugh had to say when we read it in context. It's from St. Edmund Campion's trial. The two rackmasters, Norton and Hammond, gave evidence that, under torture, Campion could not be brought to a clear answer on the bull for the Queen's excommunication. Elliot was called. He described his visit to Lyford and reported that in Campion's sermon he had spoken of a great day that was shortly to come. Queen's Council. So, what would you wish more manifest? The great day is threatened, comfortable to them and terrible to us. And what day should that be but that wherein the Pope, the King of Spain, and the Duke of Florence have appointed to invade this realm? Campion. Oh, Judas, Judas, no other day was in my mind, I protest, than that wherein it should please God to make a restitution of faith and religion. Whereupon, as in every pulpit, every Protestant doth, I pronounced a great day, not wherein any temporal potentate should minister, but wherein the terrible judge should reveal all men's consciences and try every man of each kind of religion. This is the day of change. This is the great day which I threatened. When read in context, it's clear that Campion was not predicting what the advocates of the warning need to support their case. Instead, he was giving a sermon in which, based on the Bible, he was predicting Judgment Day, just as every Protestant doth in every pulpit. Every Protestant pastor was not preaching the idea of the warning from their pulpits back in the 1500s, certainly not in the staid Church of England. They were predicting Judgment Day, and so was Campion. So the claim that Campion predicted the warning is false. All right, the next source Watkins cites was Blessed Anna Maria Taigi. Who was she? She was an Italian mystic who lived in the 1700s and 1800s, and she is quoted as having said, A great purification will come upon the world, preceded by an illumination of conscience, in which everyone will see themselves as God sees them. This certainly sounds more like the proposed warning event. However, there's a problem, which is tracking this down to see it in its original context. Watkins takes the quotation from another book on the illumination of conscience, and that book gives no source at all. This is a problem with many books and websites on apparitions. They often don't give you a source, and if they do, it's from another book or website on the same subject. And if you follow the trail, you often never get a primary source or even a scholarly secondary source that you can check. Instead, the books and websites have been copying and pasting from each other without checking to see if the quotation is real. As a result, a bunch of the quotations on what can be called the apparitions rumor net are not accurate and are just being copied and pasted from one book or website to another. That may well be the case here because I electronically searched a 400-page biography of Anna Maria Taigi, and there were no references to a prophecy where people's consciences were illuminated, not even in the material comparing her prophetic predictions to those of others. So this quotation may not be authentic. Even if it is, however, there's another problem which we've already touched on. When a person is being investigated for possible sainthood, as with Blessed Anna Maria Taigi, it's handled by the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. 
As part of the process, they look at a person's writings to see whether they're orthodox or whether they contain elements that are incompatible with the Catholic faith. But the rules for the canonization process do not direct either the local bishop or the National Conference of Bishops or the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith to do an investigation to see whether the proposed revelations that the person reported are of supernatural origin. And those are the three authorities authorized to conduct such investigations. So based on a canonization process, the most you can say is that a reported revelation is orthodox, but the church isn't signing off on it as an authentic supernatural revelation unless they've done that kind of independent review. As far as I know, that hasn't been done in the case of Blessed Anna Maria Teigi's revelations, and I haven't been able to find a statement attributed to her in an original source or a scholarly biography. So this doesn't appear to be strong evidence. Uh, another source Watkins cited is Blessed Pius IX. Uh, tell us about him. He was a pope in the 19th century, and Watkins quotes him as saying, Since the whole world is against God and his church, it is evident that he has reserved the victory over his enemies to himself. This will be more obvious when it is considered that the root of all our present evils is to be found in the fact that those with talents and vigor crave earthly pleasures, and not only desert God, but repudiate him altogether. Thus it appears they cannot be brought back in any other way except through an act that cannot be ascribed to any secondary agency, and thus all will be forced to look at the supernatural. And here there's an ellipsis in the text. Then it says... There will come a great wonder which will fill the world with astonishment. This wonder will be preceded by the triumph of revolution. The church will suffer exceedingly. Her servants and her chieftain will be mocked, scourged, and martyred. It's not clear this quotation is talking about the proposed illumination of conscience. If it's authentic, the quotation speaks about people being so hard of heart that God will need to call them back. And it does speak of some kind of wonder happening, but there's an ellipsis in the text that prevents us from saying whether this wonder will be a sudden worldwide illumination of conscience or something else. The text does say that whatever event he's talking about, it will be preceded by a triumphant revolution in which the church will suffer. One of the things about Pius IX is he was very concerned about the Italian Revolution, which followed the French Revolution, and he perceived the church as suffering greatly due to Italian nationalism. So maybe he was talking about how the seemingly triumphant revolutionary spirit in Europe would be followed by a wonderful event in which God calls people back to their senses and they undo the effects of the revolution and restore the church to a position of honor in their society. Or maybe he was talking about a different revolution or to some other kind of revolution that wasn't political. In fact, I don't know what he was referring to because I can't verify this quotation either. Once again, it's only quoted from another book on prophecy, and that book gives no source for the quotation. It's another unsourced quotation when you track down its origin. The apparitions rumor net frequently misrepresents popes because, of course, everybody wants the pope to endorse their position. Sometimes the quotations are inaccurate and they were either made up or misattributed at some point in the copy-paste process. Other times they're misinterpreted 
as supernatural prophecies when, in fact, they're not. Popes do not normally receive private revelations, and if a pope did publicly announce that he'd received a revelation, this would be trumpeted from the rooftops, and it would not be hard to find in historical sources. I mean, if the pope came out on the balcony one day and said, God just told me this, the press would be all over that. Instead, what happens is popes will make a remark about the future that's purely natural. They may be speculating based on their exegesis of a Bible passage, or they may be speculating based on their assessment of the current state of society or the political scene, or they may be speculating based on what they hope God will do in the future or what they fear others will do. But in any case, it's speculation rather than prophecy. Yet, because they're popes, people who want to claim a pope for their cause will represent it as if it's a supernatural prophecy, even though it wasn't. And if this quotation is authentic at all, that's likely what's happening in this case, because if Pius IX had publicly claimed to issue a supernatural prophecy, that should not be hard to find in the public record. All right, the next source is St. Faustina Kowalska. What about her? She was a Polish nun and a mystic from the early 20th century. In her book, Watkins quotes her as saying, Before I, Jesus, come as the just judge, I come as the king of mercy. Before the day of justice arrives, this sign in the sky will be given to mankind. All light in the heavens will be extinguished, and there will be great darkness over the whole earth. Then the sign of the cross will be seen in the sky, and from the holes where the hands and feet of the Savior were nailed will come forth a brilliant light, which will illuminate the earth for a period of time. This will take place shortly before the last day. This passage does talk about a sign to be given shortly before the end of the world. The sign involves darkness and the image of Christ and the cross appearing in the sky with light coming from his wounds. It does not involve celestial bodies crashing into each other or lasting for seven days specifically. More importantly, it does not refer to a supernatural illumination of conscience. While people would undoubtedly be moved to repent by seeing such a sign in the sky, that's not the same thing as people receiving an intense supernatural review of their own personal good and bad deeds. Therefore, this passage can't be used to support a supernatural illumination of conscience event. It's not about that. It's about the sign of the cross appearing in the heavens. And as before, the process of canonization does not involve church approval of the individual revelations a person reported. Are there other cases where quotations are being used to support the illumination of consciences that don't actually speak of it or that don't clearly do so? Yes. For example, sometimes a quotation from the 20th century Hungarian mystic Elizabeth Kindleman is used. She speaks of a future event where Mary's love is supposed to touch the earth like a flame and destroy hatred in a wondrous fashion, but that can take place in all kinds of ways. It doesn't mean that every person will receive a simultaneous review of their own sins. There's also a quotation from the 20th century German mystic Greta Gannisforth, who talks about a mini-judgment that will result in everyone recognizing Jesus as God. This revelation was given in 1945, 
And in reading the message, it wasn't clear to me that the mini-judgment she's talking about wasn't the devastation of World War II or a future war or calamity that would force people to recognize the power of God. It didn't speak in a clear way of a supernatural illumination of conscience. Also, as Christine Watkins points out in her book, there has never been a formal judgment made by the church on Gannisforth's messages, despite some positive comments being made by local officials. Are there reported revelations that do clearly speak of the illumination of conscience? Yes, though the clearest ones are all from the last 60 years, and they suffer from various difficulties. For example, some of the seers at the 1960s apparitions reported at Garabandal, Spain, do clearly speak of the warning. However, Garabandal has been investigated by the local church authorities, and they concluded that it couldn't be established as of supernatural origin. So it's an unapproved apparition that has been investigated and where the church did not find good evidence for it being supernatural. There are also the writings of the Italian priest Father Stefano Gobi, who founded the Marian Movement of Priests. His messages were a big thing back in the 1990s, and I remember having to deal with a lot of questions from people who were concerned about the imminent apocalyptic events that he was predicting. But his messages included dates, indicating that the events would take place in the 1990s. One such event was the second coming. According to his message, number 532, I, Mary, confirm to you that by the great jubilee of the year 2000, there will take place the triumph of my immaculate heart, of which I foretold you at Fatima. And this will come to pass with the return of Jesus in glory to establish his reign in the world. Thus, you will at last be able to see with your own eyes the new heavens and the new earth. However, the return of Jesus in glory to establish the new heavens and the new earth did not take place by the year 2000. Neither did other events he predicted, so Father Gobi has a problematic record of making predictions that failed. Also, in 1998, Father Albert Rue, the head of the Marian Movement of Priests, sent a letter to their membership in which he stated, Prior to the publishing of the new Italian edition of the book To the Priests, Our Lady's Beloved Sons, the secretary from the CDF, that is, Archbishop Tarsicio Bertoni, in a personal letter to Father Gobi, requested and advised that he should not claim in the book's introduction that these messages are from the Blessed Mother, but rather that they are the product of his own personal meditation. And on December 7th in the year 2000, the Apostolic Nuncio for the U.S. responded to an inquiry by writing, As to the writings of Father Gobi, I can inform you that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has advised that they are not the words of our Blessed Mother, but his private meditations for which he assumes all the theological, spiritual, and pastoral responsibility. So again, we have a set of messages that the authorities have looked into and concluded that they're not to be regarded as of supernatural origin. That's not a formal public ruling, but it's the attitude of the CDF that's been expressed in various ways. Another seer who has spoken clearly about the warning is the Australian Matthew Kelly. Now, today, he's famous as the founder of the Dynamic Catholic Company, but back in the 1990s, he was famous as someone receiving private revelations. 
However, he has discontinued publishing and speaking about this, and his works on the subject have been withdrawn from publication. If you go to his website, you will not find any mention of this aspect of his biography. According to some reports, he was asked by his bishop to discontinue promoting his revelations, but whatever the reason, he's no longer putting his name behind them. And so in this case, we have a non-approved apparition that the seer himself is no longer publicly supporting. Texas mystic Janie Garza also supports the warning, but her messages are not approved. Venezuelan seer Maria Esperanza also supports it. Currently, her diocese has a cause for her canonization open, and she has the title Servant of God. However, her case requires careful attention because she's associated with the Marian apparitions at Betania, Venezuela, which took place in the 1970s and 1980s. The local bishop did a personal investigation of these instead of simply appointing a commission to study them for him, and in 1987 he approved them. His declaration affirms that people saw the Virgin Mary there, however, Although he mentions that a few people reported speaking with Mary, he does not grant approval to any specific messages that people reported receiving. In fact, he says, I do not intend to affirm that all and each one of the apparitions that have taken place in Finca Betania are authentic. As happens in similar circumstances, here there also have been cases of simple hallucinations incited by expectation, suggestion, emotionality, and even psychological unbalance. Worthwhile mentioning at this point is the fact that during the investigation of the apparition of our Blessed Virgin in Lourdes, an apparition repeatedly studied and acknowledged, pseudo-visionaries were detected and discharged. In my investigation in the case of Finca Betania, I have also found a few cases in which I was inclined to believe and interpret as fantasies and discharge them as not valid testimonies. I have judged, therefore, that the presence of these cases on one side expected didn't lessen the validity of the appreciable volume of the numerous testimonies to which I do grant credibility. So the local bishop was not granting approval to messages being reported by any specific person, including Maria Esperanza. In fact, when you read the decree, the bishop never even mentions her reported messages. A current visionary who endorses the warning as part of her messages is the Costa Rican seer Luz de Maria de Bonilla. While a book of her messages has been given an imprimatur, meaning that it doesn't contain material contrary to the faith, and while her bishop has said nice things, her apparitions have not been approved as being of supernatural origin. Finally, there is the Canadian priest Father Michel Rodrigue, but his messages are so dramatic, we won't be able to evaluate them in this episode. So that's what we'll be doing next episode. All right. So setting aside Father Rodrigue, how does the evidence for an event like the illumination of conscience look? It's not particularly strong. The passage in Matthew 24, when compared with the parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21, is not speaking about such an event, but about things that happened before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, although they could foreshadow something in our future. St. Edmund Campion demonstrably was not talking about the illumination of conscience, but about Judgment Day. Blessed Anna Maria Taigi may have been speaking about it, but I have looked for and have been unable to verify her quotation or read it in context. 
I also can't find Blessed Pius IX's quotation in a primary source or read it in context. However, it's very unlikely he was announcing that he had received a private revelation. If he had done that, it would have made a huge splash and should be easy to verify, but it's not. If the quotation is accurate, he's more likely speaking speculatively about world affairs, such as the 19th century rise of European nationalism and the loss of the papal states. St. Faustina Kowalska's quotation does not speak of the illumination of consciences, but of a sign in the heavens. Elizabeth Kindleman's quotation speaks of Mary's love, destroying hatred, but not of an illumination of consciences. Greta Gonesforth's quotation speaks of a mini-judgment of an ambiguous nature and has not been formally approved. Garabandal has been investigated, and church authorities formally concluded that they couldn't establish it as supernatural. Father Stefano Gobi has a track record of failed predictions, and the CDF advised that his messages should be understood only as personal meditations rather than supernatural revelations. Matthew Kelly has withdrawn his statements from publication, and Janie Garza's messages are unapproved, as are those of Maria Esperanza and Luz de Maria de Bonilla. So, we don't have a solid prophetic consensus of approved seers that are clearly referring to the illumination of conscience in documentable sources. I'd also note that we see a pattern here like the one we saw with the UFO contactees. Clear discussions of the warning pop up more frequently and in more recent literature, not in older sources. The clear references are either all or mostly all from the last 60 years, and they're appearing with added detail as time goes along. That could be happening because we're getting closer to the warning, but it also could be happening because they're borrowing material from each other, either intentionally or unintentionally. The most recent seers are reading each other's literature and repeating the same message with variations, and the variations are similar to those of the contactees, with more dramatic claims being made as time goes along, and with some seers claiming more authority for themselves, like having a more prominent role in God's plan, as we'll see next episode. Does all that mean that the warning won't happen? No, God is omnipotent and can do what he chooses. In fact, I think it'd be a great gift if God did give a worldwide illumination of conscience just before the end times to help people repent. I think it would be great if he gave every person in history something like that during their lives to supernaturally supplement the ordinary but fallen action of our consciences. However, the evidence supporting the proposition that such an end time event will happen is not particularly strong. So, Jimmy, what is your bottom line on the illumination of conscience? It's possible that at some point in the future, God will cause everyone on earth to have a supernatural illumination of their consciences all at once. If so, I don't expect all of the events to take place as some of them are problematic from the reason perspective, you know, like airplanes stopping in mid-flight. But a basic glimpse into the state of our souls is possible. I also understand why people find this idea intriguing and even desirable, as it would lead to many conversions. However, the evidence for it is not strong. But regardless of that, we all need to regularly make examinations of conscience because we don't know when we'll die and we need to be spiritually prepared to meet our Maker at all times. 
Consequently, I'd like to end by quoting something that Christine Watkins says in her book, which is something I wholeheartedly agree with and that forms my bottom line. Whether or not the warning occurs in your generation or occurs at all is not the most important question. The most important question that you, dear reader, can ask is, am I ready to meet God right now? So, Jimmy, what further resources do we want to offer to the listener? We'll have a link to Christine Watkins' book, The Warning, also Evelyn Waugh's biography of Edmund Campion, the website Countdown to the Kingdom, a link to the approval status of Garabandal, so you can see how the authorities have repeatedly said we checked it out and we can't affirm it as supernatural. Also, an article by Mary Beth Krimsky on Stefano Gobi and the text of the Apostolic Nuncio's letter on Stefano Gobi, Matthew Kelly's webpage, so you can check it out and see how there's just nothing there about his former life as a seer. And then a link to the bishop's approval of the Batania apparitions, so you can see what he says about how he's not approving any messages associated with them. And we also want to say a special thanks to your wife, Melanie Dom, for reading the female parts in this episode. Yes. Thank you once again, Melanie. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, if you've been following the news, you may have noticed that there have been some stories lately about the possibility of life on Venus. So we'll have several links to those. One is an overview article from Scientific American. We'll also have a link to the original paper in Nature Astronomy and another scientific paper on how the life cycle might work if there is indeed life. Now, the proposal, so what the short form, in case you haven't seen the press stories, is scientists have found the gas phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. And phosphine is considered a possible biosignature because here on Earth, it is associated only with life. There are some organisms that make it, and then we as human beings make it industrially, like in meth labs. But it does not seem to occur naturally, and certainly not in the quantities they're finding in Venus's atmosphere. There's just too much of it. And they have tried, the authors of the paper, tried to think up every other way they could besides life to explain this, and the other explanations didn't work. And so they said, we think we may have found a biosignature. The proposal would be that there is some kind of probably microscopic life in Venus's atmosphere at levels where the pressure and temperature allow for life, because Venus does have some layers of its atmosphere that have pressure and temperature that approximate those of Earth. And so there may be life at that layer, at least microbially, that's making this phosphine gas. And we'll have a link to a story about one of the things I've been proposing for a long time. If there's life on other planets here in the solar system, it may have come from Earth because we aren't living in an isolated environment. There are rocks that get blasted from one planet to another, like the Martian meteorites we have here on Earth. An Earth-grazing asteroid could have carried Earth microbes to Venus, and they could have been extremophiles that survived a space trip and then got a home in Venus's atmosphere. Of course, whenever you have any kind of possible biosignature found, there's a group of, just like we talked about earlier in this episode, there are people who will immediately want to debunk it. So we'll also have a link to a skeptical response to this, and we'll have a link to another article on missions that either are currently on their way to Venus, 
or that could be going there in the near future that may be able to verify the phosphine in the atmosphere and that may get us more information about is there actually life on Venus. Mm. You said that uh, phosphine sometimes manufactured in meth labs. I'm thinking a new UFO consensus, Breaking Bad Venus. The the aliens are drug dealers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then and then then you can have the uh, radio telescope version of Better Call Saul. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. So that's it from us uh, this time. So we want to hear from you. What are your theories about the warning? or the illumination of conscience. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or you can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world or use the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next episode, we're going to look at the reported revelations of Father Michel Rodrigue, who claims that Mary has designated him the Apostle of the Last Time. Interesting. All right. So stay tuned for that one. In order to make sure that you do get the next episode and all the rest of our episodes, be sure you have subscribed in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, tune in your favorite podcast app or on the SQPN YouTube channel where you should hit the bell to get notifications. And you'll find links to all of Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>